Hello, welcome to Remember the Film, the podcast where we have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale. <laughs> you know, that podcast. We're, we're that one. Uh, my name is Josh Bradley. I'm joined by my co-host, Jeff Grizzolrich. Hello. And Hugo Panay. Hello, everyone. Hello. Do you guys, you guys probably weren't expecting a different line for the intro, I'm, I imagine. I'm actually, I'm on board with that one. That is one of my favorite <laughs> moments was... in the movie. <laughs> I was expecting something crazy, and I got it, so I'm happy. Yeah. Well, there's a number of, of crazy, yelly lines that I could have chosen from, from, yeah. from Network, which is what we're talking about today. Network, the 1976 movie directed by Cindy Lumet, written by Pat Jayevsky. And uh, we don't really have a main topic today. We're just going to, you know, talk about Network. Network is both our main topic and our film to remember, um, mostly because I'm extremely tired because the Oscars are tonight, and I've been working on YouTube videos for the last two, two three weeks, so... I'm, I'm yeah. cool with a shorter episode this week. What do you guys, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I'm on board for that. But also, the original concept for the podcast was we were going to be talking about, you know, more older films. And then we just got films so Films worth in, remembering. Films worth yeah. remembering. And then we, we kind of went off on the rails and got really into talking about our favorite directors and stuff like that, which has been great. But it's mm-hmm. nice to go back and talk about an old movie. <laughs> so the roots, yeah. Will this be the second oldest movie we've talked about so far? No, third. No, Because no. Godfather. Godfather. No, no, no. Yeah, second. No, second oldest. Oh, my God. Technically, we, we talked about The Godfather and Godfather Part 2. Yeah, we have Susan Cain. We, we talked about The Godfather and Godfather Part 2, but technically our film to remember that week was Godfather Part 3. Yes. So, true. as far as film to remembers go, yes. Film to remembers, yes. Films. You, you pluralize Film to it. remembers. No, <laughs> film to remembers. Film to yeah, remembers. you got to pluralize it correctly. Uh, okay. It's important. It is. It's, it's extremely, grammar and syntax is, is very important to stay consistent on. Um, so let's go right into network. Um, our boilerplate stuff. It was released November 27th, 1976, budget 3.8 million box office, 23.7 million. I noticed on the Wikipedia page, they referred to this as one of the biggest hits of 1976. And I'm like, it made $24 million in the box <laughs> office. Is that, is that really the standard? Is that, that accurate? Uh, I don't know. Oh, Maybe it's okay. like one of the greatest hits in long-term views. <laughs> well, we'll talk about sure. that because, yes, it is, but also there's a lot of good stuff in 76, and I'll, I'll mention that later. That'll come up. Um, like I said, written by Patty Chayefsky, directed by Sidney Lumet. Um, I, I think that the legacy of this movie is its screenplay and Chayefsky's brilliant work, but I just want to shout out Sidney Lumet at some point, so let's shout him out here. I, I think Sidney Lumet makes great movies, and this is, you know, um, among his best, but like his... The screenplay, the writing is a lot flashier than the, than the directing in this, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yes. But Sidney Lumet, that's kind of his style. He's not very flashy. He's more... He's not a flashy director. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I don't mean this uh, to sound derogatory, but he's kind of a point-and-shoot kind of director, but mm-hmm. in like a good way. You know, kind of a... He's letting you know, the narrative speak for the movie more than yeah. the photography. For sure. <laughs> and, you know, one of your favorite movies, Grizz, is 12 Angry Men. I think you Similar sort of thing about that. Absolutely. I mean... The staging is Wapping a Man's pretty smart, I would I'd say. But um, regardless, uh, Sidney Lumet wrote a book called Making Movies, um, and it's just about like what a director does. You know, I think that's something that not everyone really has a good, good grasp on. And uh, if you want to read a book about filmmaking, there you could do a lot worse than making movies. I, I really recommend it by Sidney Lumet, and I recommend all of his movies because he's he's he yeah. just a just a you know a workhorse. He made like fifty movies in fifty years, and he's had a long successful career so shout out to Sidney Lumet. Network was nominated for 10 Oscars at the 49th Academy Awards so it is tied with Rocky for the most nominations of the night and it won four of those 10 nominations for actor, actress, supporting actress, and original screenplay which means it was tied with All the President's Men for the most wins of the evening. 
Interesting that, uh, yeah, neither one of those won Best Picture, but they both won the most Oscars of the night. So, yeah. And we're going to need to talk about some of these Oscars as well, because I have thoughts yeah. about those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I looked up, I have the Wikipedia page for the 49th Academy Awards uh, at the ready to discuss <laughs> as needed. Um, as I said, this uh, network lost Best Picture to Rocky. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, do you guys, what do you guys think about it losing to Rocky for Best Picture? I am... Uh... I will never understand the cultural phenomenon that is Rocky. I'm sorry. But you're I Italian. Think Rocky, yeah, I think Rocky's okay. <laughs> I do not get it at all. It's it's a great underdog story. So, uh, so you don't have Italian stallion tattooed anywhere on your on your person? I, I very much do not. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I really love Rocky. I do. Uh, we've talked about how much I love sports movies, and mm-hmm. Rocky is among the best in sports movies. Uh, and I also think Rocky gets a lot of credit for the way that the movie was made in in the sense that uh, it was, you know, like, you know, it was written by Sylvester Stallone. And, you know, there's it, a, a little bit of a meta narrative between his real life and Rocky's ascent, right. you know, from humble roots. And so I think that it gets it, it gets a little bit of a boost culturally from that, uh, whereas, you know, a lot of the other nominees that year are, you know, Hollywood movies, you know, so. Mm-hmm. So I think that no. uh, I'm I'm not per- personally I would happily watch Rocky over Network basically every time, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, that doesn't that's not a negative about Network. It, it's just you know I think yeah. Rocky's the popular choice. It's like you yeah know, you know yeah. crowd pleaser. It's a crowd pleaser, and I'm part of that crowd. <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting to see to look at like the reputations of Rocky and Network and all the presence men in a modern setting because I feel like Rocky's. I mean, they made seven or eight Rocky movies, depending on who you ask. So it's still pretty pretty <laughs> yeah. relevant in the popular culture. And you, you're hard-pressed to turn on cable and not find Rocky on some channel Somewhere. every weekend. Yeah. Uh, this is totally off topic, but I'm just curious. Hugo, what's the reputation of Rocky like in Italy? Does anybody in Italy care for it or know much about it? Uh, I don't it? know. Uh, to be honest, it's not, it's not huge. Uh, okay. I think it's kind of something that people who are older than me like my stepdad mm. is really into rocky the first one mm. um but i my generation certainly not not very attached to it and sure and i think even even with creed it, they're very american films I, i'll say this so if, if you're not really interested in that culture and wanted to understand it it's not so easy to get into. i i personally love creed for example but it, I think but you are also very invested in american culture so i yeah i am <laughs> much more than than the average italian for sure yeah and the West won the Cold War because of Rocky IV. So yes, exactly. thank you for your service, Rocky IV. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have the headline here that of, of the Best Picture nominees in 1996, uh, in these Best Picture nominees, you have Taxi Driver, All the President's Men, Network, and Rocky. And I just thought it'd be an interesting litmus test to ask someone what they think should have won of those four movies. And there's a fifth movie that I don't remember, so apologies that Bound, movie. Bound, Bound for Glory, yeah. Bound for Glory. Never uh, something I've never heard of it. So. Of those nominees, like I said, I'm not mad about Rocky winning because I do love Rocky, but I probably would have said Taxi Driver uh, for Best Picture out of I, those. I've seen three of these, and I would I would probably pick both Network and Taxi Driver over Rocky. Personally. I think if you'd, if you'd asked me at any point in the last like 12 years, I probably would have said Taxi Driver, but maybe in my older age i'm starting to feel more network than taxi driver but we're all getting a little howard howard beale as we're getting older we are (laughs) yes speaking of howard beale uh peter finch playing howard beale network he won best actor and he um had had died before the ceremony i think before nominations even so he was the first 
he was the first uh, posthumous Oscar winner for acting, uh, a feat that was not, again, repeated until 32 years later with Heath Ledger and The Dark Knight, and will likely be repeated tonight, maybe? Very possible, uh, with Chadwick Boseman. If you're listening to this in the future, we're recording this on Oscar Sunday for the 2021 Oscars, and Chadwick Boseman is the heavy favorite to win Best Actor tonight. And But, I don't know, Anthony Hopkins is is creeping. He's, he's making a run, so we'll see. Um, Beatrice Strait, who plays uh, Louise Schumacher, who's uh, William Holden's wife in the movie, she set the record that I believe still stands for the least amount of screen time in an Oscar-winning performance. She's in five minutes and two seconds of this movie. And she won Best Supporting Actress. Is this a good time for me to complain about this? <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, I was, about, I was about to complain about it too. Because what... Like, okay, it was a good performance. Sure. Uh, but... Yeah. Like, should this have even been nominated for, for Best Supporting Actress? So she's... Uh, I think I, I, I clocked her in two scenes total. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the first scene was just her waking up and finding that Howard Beale is no longer sleeping on their couch like he was when they went to bed. And so that's basically a nothing scene. And then the second scene is is more, you know, emotional, but it's it's one scene. She's she's in one mode. Yeah. And I yeah. think that, you know, William Holden is has more gives more of a performance in that one scene than Beatrice Strait does, you know, no disrespect. But yeah, I mean I, I looked at I looked at the other nominees and I've actually seen a few of the nominated performances, uh, because there was Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver and Piper Laurie for playing uh Carrie's mom in the movie Carrie, and I would Pick oh, both of those. I yeah. pick both of those over uh, Beatrice Strait again. No yeah, Rebecca, but she was. Oh, now, I don't know Harry, a lot about Beatrice Strait. So creepy. I, I don't know a lot about Beatrice Strait. Did she have a pretty significant career? Do we know? Like, you know, was this like maybe a you know a uh, lifetime achievement sort of Oscar? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I I mean, I'm not saying she didn't have a great career. Just because I don't know much about her doesn't mean she didn't. But like, I know of her because of this win. Sure. And because of the the novelty of the five minutes on screen winning an Oscar because. Before. Like this is what we were talking about last week when we were making our predictions is that I get really hung up on movies being nominated or movies or performances being nominated in categories that they should not be nominated in and mm-hmm. you know while this is a supporting role it's you know it's not a it's not a substantial supporting role <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't even say it's the best female supporting role in the film to be completely honest. So I don't know. It looks like she was in Beatrice Strait was in 15 movies total. Yeah. And I think this was her only Oscar nomination. So probably not even a, a lifetime achievement you. Oscar. That, yeah. You know. you the only one I actually remembered her for was Poltergeist. She plays the, the, the I think, no, maybe not a grandma. I can't remember. Dr. I'm just, Martin, I'm getting really hung up on how little respect Taxi Driver got in this Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, again, like Beatrice Strait is in one scene. So she, she kind of has to hit one, maybe two emotions. Mm-hmm. total in her performance and like jodie foster she's only in like five or six scenes a text driver but like she's got a wider spectrum of things to convey for sure than beach yeah. straight does and i mean it's been it's been nearly two decades since i've seen carrie but i mean her mom's performance left an impression on me for sure so mm-hmm. you know i don't know but yeah and it's not just this one category uh like i, I also am hung up with network receiving two best actor nominations uh mm-hmm. When well, I have that, I want to talk about that later. Okay, we will talk about that more later. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I also yeah. have a problem with uh, Ned Ned uh, Beatty, you know, who has a, an excellent performance again for Best Supporting Actor, you know, uh, getting a nomination there. But again, I I like is he the best supporting actor in this movie or 
Robert Duvall, maybe? <laughs> um, I, I mean, I would pick Duvall over Ned Beatty, but, you know, he, he's got a big speech. Yeah. And uh, I guess the Oscars this year were big on big speeches, which might be how Peter Finch won, which, again, we'll talk about that later. Um, I mean, they also nominated... <laughs> This year they nominated uh, Burt Young in Rocky as Polly. So yeah, they, Rocky, <laughs> yeah, Rocky got two Best Supporting Actor nominations. As in this did year. this, right? Or did this uh, only get the one? Only got this the one got Best the one. Supporting okay. Actor. And that's yes. why I'm like I'm yeah. hung up on Robert Duvall not being in there. This is Network uh, American Film Institute made a list in 1998 of the 100 best American movies ever made. And then they made uh, a second list in 2007 of the 100 best movie American movies ever made. And I think it's a pretty well-regarded list you know um as as well-regarded as any any list of best movies is you know i i think if you looked at the list probably 80 80 of them are probably must-sees i would say so good list and on on that list in the 97 version network ranked number 66 out of 100 and then in the 2007 re-release list it ranked number 64 so it jumped up a whole two spots in the afi top 100 and um, I just want to note that the Best Picture nominees from 1976, four of them appear on the top 100 for AFI. Taxi Driver at 52, Rocky 57, All the President's Men at 77, and then again, Network at 64. And I was just kind of paging through the AFI top 100, and uh, 1976 is one of only three years where there are four movies from that year on the list, and the others were 1982 and 1969. You guys want to guess what movies from 1982 are on the AFI top 100? I could not e- even if I wanted to. Blade Runner is <laughs> one of them, yes. Okay. Uh, E.T. E.T. is one of them, yes. Very good. 1982. Now I'm getting now I'm getting very confused. And I think that's that's the two that I have. Cause I, the, others, the others are Tootsie, oh, Tootsie. Okay. So, and Sophie's Choice. And Sophie's Choice. How about yeah. 1969? What four movies from 1969 are on the top I 100? I have uh, absolutely no idea. Yeah, I don't think you guys... Uh, Midnight Cowboy... Midnight Butch, Ca- Butch casting the Sundance Kid. Oh, oh fantastic! I would have not, uh, uh, wait, um, Easy Rider. Easy Rider, very good. Yes. And then the fourth one, no idea. The Wild Bunch. The Wild the Bunch. Wild Bunch. Same I yeah. always struggle with remembering the years movies were released. So <laughs> yeah, I, I used to be really good at it, and I'm still kind of good at it. But I don't know. I think I'm. Do you want to know why I knew years. about Butch, Butch, uh, Butch and Sundance Kids and Easy Rider? Why? Release, being released in 1969, because I was like, oh, Tarantino, before he released uh, What's Spent a Time in Hollywood, which is set yeah. in 1969, he released yep. a list. Oh, these are the 15 movies that were in, that I was inspired by, and I watched all of those, and I remember those two being in 1969 for that reason. Thank you, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Thank you, Quentin, for your film history. Um, so, Networks, I mentioned kind of earlier, is that screenplay is regarded as one of the best ever written um, like I said, the movie itself is ranked number 64 in the AFI Top 100, but the screenplay is ranked number 8 on the Writers Guild of America's 101 Best American Screenplays Ever Written, uh, number 8 behind, uh, in ascending order, Sunset Boulevard, Annie Hall, All About Eve, Citizen Kane, Chinatown, The Godfather, and Casablanca. That's mm. eight bangers right there. Yeah. Um, you're in good uh, company if you're in that list. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And Patichayevsky wrote the screenplay in the midst of the Watergate investigation in the Vietnam War in the mid-70s. And, uh, you know, so you, you can see how the anger and frustration of the times kind of trickled in the screenplay because there is a lot of 
anger and frustration in the movie. Um, the iconic line, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore, is listed at number 19 on AFI's Top 100 Movie Quotes and is still probably probably like the number one legacy of this movie is, is, is that line. Peter Finch yelling that line. So that's what I thought. I thought about doing that for the intro, but that seemed a little too pat, so I went with uh, Ned Beatty's Ned Beatty's Primal speech. Forces of yeah. Nature line instead. Yeah. <laughs> um, this was allegedly the, the movie was allegedly not inspired by Christine Chubbuck. Do you guys know who Christine Chubbuck is? I'm gonna assume I it was know. some sort of uh, television producer. <laughs> uh, Hugo, any idea who Christine Chubbuck is? Uh, some uh, television personality who went crazy. She was a newscaster who is going to get really dark. So brace yourself. Oh, okay. She yeah. was a she was a newscaster who killed herself live on TV in oh. 1974. Oh, okay. So the, the thing that Howard Beale threatens to do in the first ten minutes of this movie actually happened two years before the movie came out. And uh, there was a movie called Christine in 2016 starring Rebe- Rebecca Hall about Christine Chubbuck. Um, it was on my list of scene. I just never saw it. Um, honestly, I kind of. I've been putting it off because it seems like a pretty sounds like sounds like a downer movie. yeah 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 um also i mean you, you know how it ends that's true i do <laughs> know how it ends but you know david dave iskoff he wrote a book about like the making of network and he had access to padchevsky's like notes that he was taking during the years of the writing process like his journal basically and uh, according to Petrachevsky's journal there's there's no entry about christine lubbock the day that she did what she did in july of 74 However, um, apparently an early draft of the script, at one point, Howard Beale said, quote, that he will blow his brains out right on the air like that girl in Florida. And Christine Chubbuck, that took place in Sarasota, Florida. So that was a reference to Christine Chubbuck there. But that line was was later cut. And uh, Sidney LeMay was adamant that they didn't base this movie on her by any means, just a possibly just a dark coincidence, you know. And, and I, I kind of buy that because I think that, you know, <laughs> the, the fact that she did that almost like ruins the satire to an extent because then it just feels like a reference to her when it's actually i would you would think like a attempt at heavy satire to have have someone threaten that and then have the movie end the way that it ends uh, well, which i won't and also won't talk about it yet. would be hard to for me to make the leap to believe that it was based on her i mean i don't know anything about her story but did she claim to be a prophet or anything you know so then so then, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the the parallels the parallels kind of stop after the first ten minutes of network. That's kind of like the yeah you get up to there, and then it kind of goes a much different direction uh, after that. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the uh, the plot, but uh, try to keep it spoiler free best we can. Um, Howard Beale, played by Peter Finch, is a news anchor for a fictional network called UBS, and um, this was the '70s, so there's only like four networks on TV. Um, and he's a, the nightly news anchor and he, uh, at the start of the movie, he finds out he's getting fired because of low ratings. So he goes on the air that night to announce his retirement, quote unquote, and says that he's going to blow his brains out on the air in one week's time. And so, um, they pull him off the air, obviously for that and, uh, make him go back on and apologize. And instead of apologizing, he just goes on a, another kind of rant rant yeah and then but then because of that rant he becomes a a ratings hit so they continue putting him on the air and actually revamp his show to give him more space to rant and rave and um i, I think that plot summary kind of makes howard beale a bigger character than he actually is in in the movie he's actually not that big of a character but uh the major players are uh max schumacher who's played by william holden he's the he's the head of the ubs news division 
Uh, Dinah Christensen is played by Faye Dunaway. She's the head of UBS programming, so like the entertainment division. Uh, Frank Hackett is played by Rob Duvall. He he, he just runs UBS. He like the network Correct. head. Network head. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But he's also a uh, a bit of a corporate stooge for CCA. And a, a part of the plot of the movie is that UBS was recently bought by a conglomerate, CCA, and I think that the um, uh, news networks in the hands of huge corporations that aren't in the news business uh, as part of the commentary of the movie. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Arthur Jensen played by Ned Beatty is in only a couple scenes, but he is the CCA chairman. So you got, um, and, and it's kind of, the movie's kind of just those three people, Diana Christensen played by Faye Dunaway, uh, Max Schumacher played by William Holden and Frank Hackett played by Rob Duvall. Those three kind of fighting over Howard Beale and what to do with him more or less. Is that, is that fair to say you think? I, th- yeah. I would yeah. say the their dynamic is the main character yeah. dynamic in the film. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's Howard's almost a prop. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I have in the outline he's more of a tool than a character. Um, so, yeah, we can talk about him later. Um, so yeah, the movie is basically about the profitization of television and the soulless opportunism that results from it. Because again, you know, Howard has a mental breakdown on the air, effectively, and they keep putting him on the air because he gets good ratings um yeah yeah so the the mechanics of how this works is after howard says he's gonna blow his brains out he's fired but then uh frank hackett rob duvall like kind of embarrasses max schumacher in front of the shareholders by announcing that they're gonna like restructure his news organization because they they lose money every year um which is again a very like corporatist position like the news is kind of supposed to lose money because it's not you're not supposed to make profit off the news it's supposed to be a service but frank hackett uh, sees it differently. He thinks every part of the corporation should make money, which is again part of the commentary of the movie. Um, so after Max is kind of embarrassed by Frank Hackett from the shareholders, he kind of goes rogue a little bit, and so he's in the control room when Howard goes on the air and goes on a second rant and starts ranting about the bullshit on the air. And instead of pulling him off the air because Max Schumacher is throwing a little hissy fit about being embarrassed for the shareholders, he lets lets Howard go and just keeps him on the air. And because of that, it becomes a hit. Um, Oops. So it's kind of a maybe a bit of a monkey's paw situation for for uh, Max Schumacher. And then Faye Dunaway's character notices because he's in charge of programming, and she notices. Oh, actually, she sees it more from someone who's in charge of programming in the sense that she's looking at how something might get ratings or not get ratings, regardless of yes. whether it's good news or not. Um, exactly. Yeah. And so she sees it, and she's like, "If I am, I'm in charge of that. I'm going to make it the biggest yeah. show on television." And she's looking it's for an opportunity to. In, she's yeah. looking for an opportunity to increase her role. Yeah. Uh, with the network, and she sees Howard Beale as the golden ticket. You know. <laughs> Soulless opportunism. Yes. Yep. yep. Um. Yeah, and then it also that's a good good point, Hugo. Again, Diana Christensen runs the entertainment sector of the division, and Max Schumacher runs the news sector of the division. And the the two meld, you know, the entertainment section begins to take over the new show and starts producing the new show, which is, uh, I'll say the third or fourth time now, kind of the part of the commentary of the movie and the, the modern day relevance. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get to the modern day relevance, though, just real quick, what did, what did you guys think of Network? Like, in general, Chris, what do you think of Network? So, I have mixed feelings on this, because I think narratively it's fantastic, and it deserves its place on you know the best screenplays list but as we kind of talked about the movie itself is not shot in a particularly brilliant manner it, it's very like you said point and shoot 
And so the actual visuals of the movie to me are somewhat boring. And uh, even, and, and, and this could be a function of it being dated, like, you know, that I'm coming into it so far in the future. And I, I've seen this once before as well, but, you know, I didn't see it in 1976 when the, the visuals of Howard Beale's show were probably like the cutting edge film, you know, stuff for, you know, for making those sort of shows. But all the visuals look very dull to me, and I don't know. So Sidney LeMay, he, he, I mentioned his book, Making Movies. If you read that, you kind of get the sense that he sees being a director as just very much a nine-to-five job, you know? And, like, I think that kind of comes across in his style, the way he shoots stuff. He shows up, gets his shots, goes home, has dinner with his wife, like that kind of thing. Like, I think that kind of comes across in the way this is shot, too. It's just very business-like and not very flashy. It's just kind of like... All right, here it is. You know. So when you combine the my issues with the actual movie, like what I'm watching, combine that with the personal issues I have with the story, because like it is upsetting <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, it makes it less fun. That, but again, that doesn't take away from the quality of the script, because I, I I do think that's supposed to be kind of the one of the points that's being driven home. Uh, but uh, so overall, I don't super enjoy. Network, it's good, uh, and if if we weren't having this conversation, I probably wouldn't have ever w- watched it again. So, I mean, thank you for, you know, suggesting You're it. You're welcome. I, I... You're welcome for bestowing Network upon <laughs> you. Uh, Hugo, where are you at on Network? I, I loved it. I, I'm a big fan of, of satire, uh, specifically when it's political satire and social commentary and, and how does the commercialization of everything and the big corporate overlords that control everything change the real world and i and i think and I actually think Sid, sydney lumet's style in this works really well in contrast with that because the style is so um naturalistic yeah naturalistic distant he he he's very much uh the ultimate gritty 70s director he's like yeah. pointing the camera at something the action happens the camera follows it, it there's nothing very flashy about it mm-hmm. so it, it it looks so straight, but what is happening on screen is so almost farcical for me that I think that contrast works fantastically for me. And I, and I really enjoyed it as a satire, most of all. I thought it was, it did feel like it dragged a little bit when it went into the more personal side, because I felt that, that like the personal relationships were a little melodramatic sometimes and didn't really fit the overall theme of the film. But But other than that, I thought it was great. So that was one of the other big problems I have with the movie is it almost feels like two different movies. The the movie about the television show and the movie about uh, Max Schumacher's, you know, love interests and, and all that. And I felt like it's a little, uh, it got a little soap opera-y for the, the those sort of scenes with Max Schumacher and his wife or Max Schumacher and, and, uh, and Diana. Diana. Uh, so and- yeah, let, let's 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 talk about you know contextualize what we're talking about. So Diana, the head of the new division, and Max, head of the new uh, sorry Diana, the head of the entertainment division, and Max, the head of the news division, begin having an affair. And yep. uh, we mentioned Beatrice Strait is only in one scene. Her one scene is when Max confesses to her that he's having an affair, and she just reacts to him having an affair, and she won an Oscar for that reaction, I guess. But I mean, I, I think that that's fitting with the message of the movie because you know it's a 
a little bit of an on-the-nose metaphor. Entertainment yeah. is in bed with news. You know, that's they're having a immoral, <laughs> uh, immoral affair. You know, and uh, to the detriment of everyone involved. I think, right? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And and maybe that's maybe that that's something I need to think about, like for myself when I'm watching these sort of movies. Is how much I let how on the nose something is bother me. Uh, yeah, I like subtext. And uh, when it when the subtext rises to the surface too far, I start to be like, "Okay, guys. I mean, we could have been a little more creative mm-hmm. here." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I. For me, it's just that the the melodrama of his personal relationships goes on a little too long. Like, I, I think it fits into the film quite well because I think his character is the only character that you can attach yourself to because he's the only one that's making any sense throughout this story. Like all of the other characters. Like Faye Dunaway, she only talks about ratings ever. Yeah. She's never she never talks about anything else. He's Frank certainly Hackett, the audience audience point of view character for sure. Yeah. Frank Hackett, he only talks about the corporation is supposed to make money. Uh, you know, uh, obviously the, the the protagonist of the film, as as the film is framed at least initially, is essentially a lunatic throughout it, and mm-hmm. there's no attachment that you can have to him. And he's the only one that seems to be grounded in reality and realizing how crazy all of this is. And so I think it's important to show how he interacts with the other characters and how in the relationship she's she's completely detached from the real world. She's just so focused on her work and what she's trying to do that I think it fits. I just think it goes on a little too long. It's a little too melodramatic. If you don't mind, Josh, I just wanted to touch on one more thing with uh, William Holden's character here. I, he's like Hugo said, the supposed to be the character that the audience can relate to. And so I have a, a slight issue with the decision to make him make decisions that I don't think the audience would make if, if they were in the same, you know, shoes. Like which, which decision? Well, so like cheating on his wife. I, I, you know, I mean, I know that the whole, uh, the metaphor of being in bed with the you know news and all that, notwithstanding, I, I'm supposed to relate to this character and view him as the 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 person the person that you want to win, right? You want him to succeed in whatever. Uh, at least that's how I thought it was at the start of the movie. Mm-hmm. But it's not that. Uh, you're j- he's he becomes sort of a passive observer uh, to so much of it, and you know maybe that's another metaphor that we are just watching all this stuff happen and not doing anything about it, uh, but. For me, that that was frustrating, and I wanted him to, you know, do something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I hadn't thought about that. That's interesting, though. I would, I would maybe I need to th- reflect more on like why he decides to begin that affair with Faye Dunaway because it is his decision for the most part. Like she kind of, she kind of softly comes on to yeah, him. Yeah, like, she a offers. Bit. Yeah, but then he <laughs> like he you know talk about movie about solo opportunism he takes that opportunity and and runs with it uh also when she does like softly come on to him she mentions that she was a journalism or uh, a studying speech at the university of missouri, missouri when he gave it when he gave a uh he came and gave a talk there and shout out to mizzou uh great great school <laughs> no, like one of the to, one uh, of the top journalism schools in the, the world yeah. <laughs> uh, my brother went there my three cousins went there my uncles went there so shout out to mizzou and shout out to diana christensen uh go tigers <laughs> He's, I think uh, his character is is as flawed as everyone else, but it, it, I, I don't mean that you're attached yourself to him emotionally necessarily. I just think he's the only one that is making any sense. Just yes. everyone else is so yes. over the top and so... Which it, is why it was frustrating when he you know, makes decisions satirical. that don't make sense to me. <laughs> well, but I mean, it, uh, cheating isn't... 
doesn't have to be rational. A lot of people cheat. Sometimes relationships yeah. just kind of fizzle out and, mm-hmm. and shit happens. And it's also, it's the 70s. Sure. Yeah. Saying. So the, the trope of the wife is at home and the, the hotshot exec at the TV company has a, an affair is, is also kind of something that you would see there. Not to lean too hard into the into the metaphor that I mentioned earlier about news being both entertainment, but there is something maybe to be said about that she she runs the entertainment division. It's big and shiny, and y- you want to watch it even if it's if it's bad for you. So like you can kind of apply all those things to Diana Christensen herself. She's she's shiny, and you want to get in bed with her even though it's bad for you, and it is bad for him. But he does it anyway. That kind of stuff. And he knows it's bad, like from yeah, the start, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um. And and you know. I don't know if this is the place to talk about it, but Diana Christensen, she does have a lot of wild ideas about how to get good ratings. She, you know, puts in ec- the ec- ecumenical liberation army, a should I should we have the spoiler warning group. up? No, this, no, is, this okay. is all in the first no, 15 minutes. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, we'll talk more about the ecumenical, ecumenical. liberation army, but uh, <laughs> in this fuller section, but yeah, she gets, gets in, gets in bed, metaphorically speaking with, uh, you know, communist terrorist a domestic terrorist group yeah to and puts them puts them on the air gives them a show because i guess people like that kind of stuff um which uh hugo you mentioned in in talking about what you like about the movie you like that it's a satire yeah and so i guess I'll, I'll jump to that section of the outline um this is a satire a pitch black comedy do you find this movie funny hugo do you find this I, funny i several times i thought it was hilarious okay. um I think that because of what I said before, because of how straight everything is played, except for the over-the-top performances, and because of the, just the sheer ridiculousness of of many of the situations in the film. So, um, for example, a scene that that kind of I I I that really surprised me that I really laughed at is the first time that Faye Dunaway's character meets the the sort of black woman who's who's a member of the Communist Party. Just their first interaction is, I it really we can't say the lines obviously for for obvious reasons, but it I thought was absolutely hilarious. Um, and I think it sets up this this dynamic where throughout the whole movie, even the revolutionaries are kind of kind of still part of the whole corporate structure and trying to make money. Really, so yeah, yes. kind of, of course, it adds to the whole farce of it, and and I think. You know the ending. When we get to the ending, the way it's treated is is very very satirical, very uh, uh, jarring to some. Like it doesn't seem realistic in any way, but it, it to me it was quite funny because it it is a satire, it is a deep cutting critique, but it does it in a way that what was quite funny for me. I, I really enjoyed it as a as yeah. a satire <laughs> satirical comedy thing. Yeah, the moments. I mean, I, I kind of darkly laugh at a few yeah, things. Exactly. I'm not sure I would like it's call it like ha 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 funny but no um i did i did flag a few moments and they're they're mostly in keeping with your point which is that there's a there's a contrast between the content you're seeing and the way the content is presented mm-hmm. um you mentioned the ending scene which we can talk about in a little bit but uh i think Sidney lumet's very naturalistic style and kind of cold detached style really highlights the contrast in the ending scene um when howard first says i'm gonna blow my brains out on the air we're in the control room as he says yeah. that, and like <laughs> no one even no like one notices is listening. he says it. Like <laughs> he says, "I'm gonna blow my brains out on the air," and the next thing you hear is a woman saying, 10 seconds to commercial." <laughs> and like that was really <laughs> yeah. funny to me. Yes, I um, laughed at that. Yes, uh, the, the, as you said, Hugo. There's a scene where you know 
communist domestic terrorists, the ELA, is sitting around talking about subsidiary rights on their show and someone shoots a gun into the ceiling to like get people to shut up so they can talk yeah. about subsidiary rights yeah which is just that's, you know yeah again uh, a, a heavy contrast that's that's very amusing particularly given the communist first uh capitalist uh uh, uh conversation happening there yeah. um and also like um when 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 diana takes over howard beale's show and makes it like this entertainment show uh he ends a lot of his ranch just by passing out passing out yeah and then the camera like the camera just like pushes in on him passed out and the audience just starts the music crazy (laughs) (laughs) i laughed yeah the first time he fell i i guffawed like (laughs) well they 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 do a good job of setting it up because howard is in max schumacher's office howard max schumacher old friends decades decades long Mm -hmm. friends and howard kind of goes on a mini rant in Max's office and then works himself up and then faints. And like when he faints in Max's office, Max like runs to his aid, uh, you know, checks on him, make sure he's okay. Gets him to gets him, you know, what he needs. And then when he faints a second time on the air, you know, the camera just pushes in the theme music plays and the audience. <laughs> yeah, applies. No one goes to help. The theme music really got me though. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, yeah, and, and that happens. I, that's how every episode ends going yeah. forward. <laughs> I guess yeah. Howard passing yeah. out, <laughs> and except for the last episode. Except for the last episode, yeah. but we'll talk about that yes. later. <laughs> and it, on that note, uh, another thing that I found funny every time was any scene that the Jensen was in, which is Ned, Ned yeah. Beatty. Ned Beatty. Right. Mm-hmm. Ned Beatty's character was in. I thought was hilarious. Like the first time he's in it, um, I think you have a scene before with Frank that's saying, "Oh, I'm going to be at the meeting yep. of the shareholders next year. I mean, I'm going to say these words, and they're going to say, and Jensen is going to sit there and say, "Good job, Frank. Keep it. Good job, Frank. Keep it up." And then we get to that scene, that and exactly he says happens, the yeah. thing, and then mm-hmm. Jensen is sitting there and he says, "Good job, Frank. Keep it up." I, I thought yeah. that was hilarious. And yeah. then his meeting with, uh, you know, what's he called that? Howard. Name Howard again later in the film is uh, to me that's the yeah, muddled scene. with the primal forces yeah. of nature, Mister Beale, which is. Very over the top, yeah. and at the same time, that idea of the primal force of nature is a metaphor for you know the the invisible hand of, of the market that's going to fix everything. And that that is that is fun. my favorite scene in the movie is Ned Beatty's speech yeah. because I just love like you know that 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 they come into that scene and Ned's walking with Howard and says, "So they tell me you're you're a bit crazy or or whatever the, the, the line is." <laughs> <laughs> and then so he then, matches that, that and so then he yeah. matches that craziness it's like okay if i'm talking to a crazy person i gotta <laughs> talk like a crazy person <laughs> yeah he he gives this I, I have this later on we can this isn't, isn't really spoilers we can talk about this he ned Beatty, as the chairman of cca uh has to give howard a talking to after some of the things he's talked about on his show and he mm-hmm. gives him he gives him his talk to in this fire and brimstone kind of speech like you guys said he's kind of matching matching Howard's energy and matching his vibe. And I kind of want to talk later in the spoiler section about why he would do that, but oh, can, for can sure. we put a pin in that? Yeah, we'll put a pin for, in that because I definitely want to talk, okay. like I said, my favorite scene in the movie, so I want to talk more about that. <laughs> I think that scene is actually staged pretty artfully. That's not just a yeah. point-and-shoot scene. The I way agree. They, yeah, keep him the at the other end of the table. And the yeah. Very, yes, uh, pro- probably one of the most, one of the more indelible Im- images in, in network is the image of Ned, Ned Beatty from across the room with those green lamps lying on the table and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I skipped this section of the outline to talk about the satire. Uh, uh, Grizz, anything about the satire? Anything about finding this movie funny? Oh, uh, like I said, there, there are several moments that I laughed 
I, I like I said, I laughed out loud at, at some things. And, uh, you know, so in that sense, that's one of the things I do like best about the movie uh, is it, it is very darkly funny. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially with some of the subject matter being as dramatic as it is, being able to work in that dark humor is part of what makes the screenplay so great. Uh, yes. That it is the, the humor and the satire is definitely my favorite part of, of this movie. And I think the other thing that makes the screenplay great, and part of the reason it has the reputation it has, is because people see it as a very uh, prescient movie and predicting, mm-hmm. predicting a lot of things about how you know the media world works nowadays. Uh, I pulled this quote from Aaron Sorkin. Sorkin said that, uh, quote, no predictor of the future, not even Orwell, has ever been as right as Chayefsky was when he wrote Network. So, you know, this movie's four or five years old, but, you know, again, it has the reputation of kind of predicting a lot of stuff. Um, I want to ask you guys, like, what do you see in the current media landscape that this movie kind of predicted four or five years ago? Well, um, I'm forgetting his name right now, but Howard Beale 100% is the InfoWars guy. Alex Jones? Alex Jones. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I, I feel like... I don't know like, if I'd go that far. I mean, okay. <laughs> Not I, I mean, in the but... sense that Alex Jones is a crazy person who believes mm-hmm. he's a prophet. <laughs> that's fair okay so in his demeanor yeah yeah and and the bombast i don't, I don't the bombast remember how beal i don't remember how beal talking about frogs turning you gay or no the water supply turned the frogs gay that's it no, yeah i mean you're you're, you're right <laughs> howard beal while being a crazy person says some pretty poignant things i'm not going to give alex jones credit for any of that but i just mean yeah. like like i think that people like alex jones or uh bill o'reilly or some of these big you know news personalities Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like they watch Network and they're like, oh, I can do that. <laughs> oh, yeah, perfect. Yeah. That's what I'll base my life on. <laughs> and so then they, they they are a little, like like we said earlier, fire and brimstone sometimes. They're, you know, they, they, they talk about things in grandiose levels and, you know, theatrically. Yeah. And it, Trying to hold also, people's attention. It also just in general anticipated a lot of the concept or the modern concept of, of infotainment which mm-hmm. is the, the melding of entertainment and information. Um, That's what I put, yeah. Where the news become not, you know, not, as we as you said before, Josh, not, not a service, but they also have to make money. They also have to be entertaining, so the masses tune in, pay for it, watch the ads, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And it's almost like a blueprint for the 24-hour news network, you know? <laughs> yep. I, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's kind of hitting on the head right there. Is that's, um, Yeah. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's what this movie predicted more than anything else, the 24-hour news network. And, and again, like you said, Hugo, the ad buys and and, and keeping people's attention as, as much as they can. And pe- holding people's attention is more is more important than, than giving them information. And that's yeah. kind of the, the unholy matrimony of, of news and entertainment. And, you know, the way that Frank Hackett says, you know, is so aghast that the news division runs at a thirty million dollar deficit every year, and that it should be it should be making money and should be held accountable to the corporate standards mm-hmm. like every other part of the corporation, and that's you know probably not not great and probably kind of got us to where we are today. Yeah. Um, um, it also just in general I think predicts a lot of um, the evolution of television and mass media overall, um, where the the news cycle is so fast and even the entertainment side has to cater to like the what did i say the lowest common denominator and it it, all that matters is the rating and so Mm -hmm. i think it is predicting the way mass media operates to a t right now in regardless of whether it's news whether it's entertainment whether it's a streaming service or whatever it is 
I also think there, there's a certain degree of prescience about Howard telling people to get angry. Yes. And I feel like that is what a lot of news media is today, whether no matter which you know branch of the political spectrum you're looking at, there's a network that wants you to get angry about, about something. something. And yeah. they're going to tell you, like, here, here's what it is and here's why you should be angry. And then you should go out and be angry. And then, and mm-hmm. then they do. <laughs> we can see and it all over our social media. <laughs> There's lots of people who are watching things on television and that's telling them to be angry. And then they tell all their friends, I'm angry and, and this is why. Mm-hmm. And, you know, very prescient in that regard. And that, I think that's another reason why this movie, like, is a little upsetting to me. Because it's like, man, 1976, we knew this was going to happen. And we did mm-hmm. nothing to stop it. <laughs> um, I think what we're kind of also like, the story beneath this story is the corporate corporatization of of uh of everything basically not just television yeah. and news but everything and you know profits profits over truth profits over morals etc just the the power of the dollar um and and ned Beatty's speech about you know there being no nations or peoples just just corporations and, and money mm-hmm. um but I, I i i'm not sure that's prescient so much as like that's the state of the world in 1976 and they're just yeah. like saying the state of the world and then that's just gotten worse in the last yeah. four or five years so i mean i guess that's you call it prescient but i i, I yeah. wouldn't even say it's prescient it's just the way that it was back then and and now it's still like that is and it still now. sucks yeah so, yeah um but yeah in terms of of that television element another thing that i wanted to talk about is is i think there's some veiled uh, criticism of tv even on the entertainment side in the sense that i think Lumet is a director from you know, some would say some could say the golden age of cinema, like the fifties to the seventies, is a period where cinema was the highest form of entertainment at the time, and in which cinema was also very much art. And I think this is both in a moment where television has is becoming a threat to cinema, which could be prescient as well if you think about the streaming wars right now and how streaming can, could be potentially a threat to cinema today. Um, so it's a threat to cinema, and at the same time, you're also in a very specific period for cinema itself, where cinema is becoming more commercialized. You know, it, it, the film was released in 1976, so it's a year after Jaws and a year before Star Wars. So this is the moment where the huge commercial commercialization of cinema is happening, and I think there is an element of of even him as a filmmaker seeing just the entertainment world going in a direction that he doesn't necessarily agree with. And see, mm-hmm. regard, it's framed around television, but I think you can kind of extrapolate a wider idea of the over-commercialization of everything that is going yeah. on in, in that time specifically. Yeah, and I, I think you could, you know, we already talked about Diana Christensen and, and what she's willing to put on the air and, you know, yeah. what what responsibility do people who, who program these things have you know, it, it, it's just anything that makes money can go on the air or do you, you know, have any kind of, uh, again, like moral responsibility to only put certain things in the air and not communist uh, domestic terrorists, for example, yeah. not put yeah. them on the air. Yeah. Where's the line? <laughs> yes. I want to talk about Peter Finch's performance, if that's cool. Again, for the Oscar, he won posthumously and he beat out Rob De Niro and Taxi Driver. Uh, Sylvester Stallone and Rocky, and his co-star William Holden as Max Schumacher. Um, what do you guys think about that Oscar win? 
it's, 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 <laughs> I think it's one of those. It's one of those. Why is Lakeith Stanfield in this category uh, in the first place? Um, it. I. Why is he a lead actor in this? I don't know. He's, he's not the lead he's, actor. Like he, I think he's the protagonist at the beginning, but then the whole movie is essentially framed around the other three main characters, and he's kind of always in the background. Yeah, it's how the other characters use him is yeah. what the movie is about. So yeah. I, I, he's a supporting actor. I mean, this agreed completely agree. Yeah. Looks like the textbook definition of a supporting actor. Well, <laughs> he just gets to give the big speeches, and like the the mm-hmm. legacy of the movie is kind of his speeches he he gives i don't know four or five big speeches that's kind of all he does yeah like, there's four or five big speeches then there's maybe two or three scenes of him having conversations with max schumacher that's that's all he's in the movie you know he's and, and they're yeah. great they're great they scenes are. and it is but, an excellent performance and had he been in best supporting actor i would i would have been fine with uh him winning that mm-hmm. uh yeah but as best actor you know i mean certainly in comparison to robert de niro and taxi driver or you know Sylvester Stallone as Rocky, where like he you know they embody those characters so brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, but like you guys said, the movie does begin and end with Howard. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the first line of narration is you know this is a story about Howard Beale, who is the network news anchor on UBS TV. So like, is it really a story to Howard Beale? Not really. Arguably, he's not in it much. Like you guys said, he kind of shows up, goes away, shows up again to give a speech, then goes away again. It's mostly the other three characters. I, if the story, if the narration had said this is the story how of how television destroyed Howard Beale, I think that would you know make more sense to me because at the start of the movie he's just a just a news anchor and a pretty well respected one who's you know in the industry he's not getting the ratings he used to but you know like you know and then here's how we how we absolutely ruin this man <laughs> yeah I mean I, I think William Holden is arguably a lead actor in this and he was yeah. nominated and lost to his his co star um. Yeah, to not honestly, De Niro or, or Stallone should have should have won this personally. Yeah. I mean, it, it's cool that they gave a posthumous Oscar, but that would happen again, and it will probably happen again tonight. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like, I'm also just like really uncomfortable with his performance. <laughs> like, he's he's so clearly mentally unhinged and unwell, and is in need of of medical attention of some sort, yeah. and he doesn't get it. So like, anytime he's like on screen, I'm like nervous. Yeah, and like particularly the ones where he's not on TV. If, if they have him on TV, then like, okay, fine. Let him rant. He's in his happy place. He's in the zone. But like when he's in, in like smaller conversations, like in meeting rooms with Max, like I just get nervous. Like, what's he going to do? He's so volatile. And like, I don't know, makes me deeply uncomfortable. I completely agree. And you know, maybe that's part of the power of the performance, but, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. it is also like, <laughs> I, it's one of those moments where I, 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 I kind of get hung up on people not reacting to things the way people would react to things. And yep. at some point, even if you want to keep using him on the television show, you're going to put a body man on Howard Beale to make sure that he doesn't <laughs> hurt himself or someone else. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one one of my favorite lines in the movie that I forgot about until I watched it this week is so the the I'm out as hell. We're not going to take this anymore. Speech he gives. Uh, Howard had been missing for most of the day. And then he like shows up to the news station in the middle of the broadcast in pajamas and like a trench coat with yeah. his hair must from the rain and they put him on the air. But when he walks into the news studio <laughs> again in pajamas and an overcoat, the doorman's like, hello, Mr. Beale. And he just says, I must make my witness. Sure thing, <laughs> sure Mr. Thing, Beale. Mr. Beale. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I almost made our intro, I must make my witness, but I felt that was too obscure of a line. But just, what a great, great line. I must yeah, make another great comedic beat, by the way. Yes. Yes, I yes think for sure. what's great about the comedy in the film that it, they're never really necessarily going for joke jokes. It's just the absurdity of the situation that yes. makes it funny. Yes. Uh, I mean, while we're talking about it, do you guys got anything on the performances of Faye Dunaway, uh, William Holden, Robert Duvall, or Ned Beatty? I mean, they're, they're all pretty good across the board, I think. Yeah, yeah I, I, I do I think they were Robert all Duvall excellent. in everything, so... I think, that especially Faye Dunaway and Robert Duvall, like, they're supposed to be network execs, and and they're just awful people, and they do yep. such a great job being awful people. <laughs> they're, they're also both, and Ned Beatty also, they're, they're, all three of them are, are really going for it. They mm-hmm. go really big. Uh, pr- you know, Ned Beatty comically so almost, but like yes. Diana Christensen and Frank Hackett are like m- pretty straight down the r- line characters, but they they go really big uh, at times. Uh, notably, Pauline Kale, the critic for the New Yorker, didn't mm-hmm. like this movie, and her her review was called "Hot Air," and in reference right. to how much every character just kind of yells mm. and like gives big speeches, and like that didn't really work for her. I kind of like it personally, but I-, I do see that criticism, I guess. But I don't know, it's- I like it. I think it's it, there is an element of it being a little in contrast with the the style of the times. Mm-hmm. I, I th- feel like the seventies, as I said before, are very in terms of filmmaking. A lot of films are very naturalistic. The acting is even in response to previous eras where the acting was a little more theatrical. The acting in the seventies starts to be a little more grounded in reality, a little grittier. And this is very theatrical. So it, yeah, there could be an element of just the expectation going in. I mean, honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, I think this might be my Robert Duvall role of choice. Like, you know, mm. long, wide-spanning career and a lot of iconic performances, including The Godfather. But I don't know. I think I like him in this more than more than anything else, I, maybe. Nothing yeah. will ever beat Robert Duvall in Apocalypse Now for me. Ah, uh, yeah, that's true. Wild. Yeah. He's only in, like, one scene, though, I guess. Yeah, but it's so um, good. <laughs> yeah, I think his character in Apocalypse Now probably shares more in common with Frank Hackett than with um. Oh yeah. Uh, Tom. Tom Hagen. What's I, up, Grizz? I think... Robert Duvall and Faye Dunaway, both of their performances, while over the top and and yelly, I, I I think that they are over the top in ways that make sense for the archetype that they're mm-hmm. playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which whereas I don't feel like that's why maybe that maybe that's why I feel so much like all the William Holden stuff feels so soap opery because like everyone else is you know they're 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 yelling and then William Holden's you know. Kind of like he's playing it, yeah, normal. He's playing it normal, yeah. and it's very weird. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I guess when I say that Faye Dunaway's going for it, I don't mean she's yelly. I mean she's kind of like sporadic and all over the place, and like kind of over the top, and like how she gestures right. and, and and says things. But like th- that does work for the character because mm-hmm. she she talks about <laughs> ratings and numbers and profits and margins it, using a lot of terms I don't understand, Constantly. but that's like all she talks about and like that it gets her really excited and worked up and that's why she's gesturing wildly and kind of circling the office like a like a crazy person like but i think that works as her characterization i guess yeah um even even if it is kind of a a, a big performance just because she i mean notably she even like talks those kind of numbers and ratings and stuff as they are getting into bed together and obviously the the line that the dot they want you to connect is like that's getting her off is talking about profits and, and ratings yeah. and that kind of stuff and that's the only thing that gets her off yeah um i mean I, I mean she's kind of the you know bad at life good at her job kind of female character that we see way too many of but um i don't know i still like her in this yeah well and maybe in 1976 maybe there weren't so many bad at life good at her job female characters 
don't know. Yeah. I, I, maybe, well, maybe, maybe we're just viewing it with several more decades of that character showing up. <laughs> I guess I, I guess I will say that. So she won, she won best actress for this and that's, that's cool. Um, mm-hmm. she's great. But like the three iconic Faye Dunaway performances for me are, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, Chinatown and this, and this is number three of three for me. I, li- I like her a lot more in Chinatown and Bonnie and Clyde than, than I do in, in network, but she's still good. Uh, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. That's like I said earlier, kind of like the, the legacy of the movie, the, the one thing people take away. Why do you guys think that's still like an iconic line 45 years later? What do you think that's speaking to at the time and still? For me, it, it's because it's it's the beginning of him going completely off the deep end. But in that individual line, there's kind of a universal truth of it, just everyone can relate to the experience of feeling like they have no idea what's going on, feeling like they yeah. no, have no idea how to fix all the problems that they see constantly around them, and they just get fed up. And, and you have a moment where you just want to yell and... Because there's nothing else you're able to do. And I think it's a universal feeling. And at the same time, I think it's a universal feeling that a lot of the angry media pundits of today exploit in order to kind of weaponize that feeling that people of helplessness and of just really not knowing what the hell is going on that people have. And so they, they yeah. and then they pump them with a bunch of fake information and make them do stuff, which is kind of what happens in the film. I, I was just ma- making sure I, I wanted to say this at some point. Hugo's not going to get this reference, but I'm hoping Josh will. Whenever I see this scene where people are poking their heads out of the window and yelling, I'm it's as my mad body, as I hell. Want it now. That is all I can think of, Josh, is the J.G. <laughs> Wentworth commercials. There's this uh, lending company <laughs> in the United States, J.G. Wentworth, and they, they they had a whole ad campaign where people, that was an homage to this scene. It was an homage to the scene where people yes. poke their heads out of the window and yell, it's my money and I need it now. <laughs> talk, talk about uh, the corporate, corporate overlords of America. Right? Uh, <laughs> that's... <laughs> and that's all I can think about every time I see this this uh, you know scene. And, it, it, and the other thing, I guess I should, it shouldn't say it's all like, the other thing I think about is how I would never do this. And I, I don't know anyone who would be watching the news and they say, go open your window and scream outside. I know literally no one who would actually be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. I mean, it's, you know, it's like the it's like the uh, the viral tweeting of 1976, basically, you know. Yeah, but, but people do the retweet because there's a, a, a barrier. You're, 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 key, yeah. you're behind your keyboard, you know. Opening your window, I was like, look at this psychopath screaming out their window. Yeah, I mean, personally, I prefer the good old days where people connected to each other by screaming each other out their windows instead of <laughs> interacting behind a screen. Um, Hugo, I agree with you that it, it that the I'm as hell not going to take this anymore. It speaks to the feeling of powerlessness and the feeling of being overwhelmed by the grind and just being ground down by uh, daily life, basically, yeah. and and how you know. It's easy. To, it's easy to you know the, the marginalization of the individual is kind of talked about in this movie and how uh, corporations kind of run everything and so the little guy is kind of no longer relevant. You could argue mm-hmm. and like that 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 is grating that that feeling if if that's how you feel and so if someone kind of points that out to you, you know, get mad at that. That's what yeah. people are responding to and I I, I don't know. I, I think that it's it's harder to you know. It's easy to look at the 70s with a longer view of history and say, yeah, it was a pretty tumultuous time. And, you know, 
like I said at the top, you know, Vietnam and, and Watergate, like I understand why people were frustrated because it was a tumultuous time. Mm-hmm. Hard to say if our current time is as tumultuous as that. I don't think so. But again, we don't have the, the view of history to tell us that. But like people still feel ground down and frustrated in powerlessness. So that's probably why it still resonates. Grace, what do you got? I was going to say, I, I do think that we're still as tumultuous now as then. Just different tumult would be. Sure. <laughs> uh, I think tumult is a constant in all times. And uh, right. But one, one thing I wanted to comment on was that, you know, people like the people can relate. They're being told you're, you're marginalized and all that. But I appreciate the irony of a bunch of individuals being told they're being marginalized by corporations. And they're being told that by a corporation. And it's there's it indicative of a willingness of the individual to forsake their individuality to be part of this group that like oh oh we're all marginalized yes I will happily pretend to be marginalized yeah. with you because then I will not feel marginalized. <laughs> it's the little guy who is broke and lives in a trailer in in the middle of America and votes for the billionaire because the billionaire says i'm on your side that's yeah. you know it says i know you're oppressed i'm gonna fight for you it that's what this movie is kind of getting to and it, it, it being after watergate i think is is pretty pretty perfect yeah yeah so can we get to the spoiler section and talk about the ending of the movie yeah and, let's talk yeah. yes cool all right so uh spoilers do you have the spoilers up i do uh, so uh, we kind of talked a lot a lot about this already, but so Diana begins producing Howard Beale's show, which basically allows Howard to just rant as much as he wants and then rants himself into fainting spells, apparently. <laughs> um, and one of his rants is about the fact that a shell corporation uh, for Saudi Arabians are buying CCA, which is the conglomerate that owns UBS. So, you know, an- another layer of the corporate takeover is happening. And um, and he says in his rant that that, that shouldn't happen, that, you know, the Saudis own too much of the country already, uh, which is also kind of a. I don't know, I don't know if that's prescient. I don't. I don't, really, I don't really know enough about how our economies run to, to comment on that. But, but that you know, this is also these were also the years of the oil crisis, where yeah, the oil the crisis Saudis, w- happened a few years earlier before yeah. this. But they do kind but of it, make mention of o- like OPEC the oil crisis kind of was movie. kind of something that was in the conversation between seventy three and seventy nine. Sure, it was kind of a second yeah, yeah. big hit in seventy nine. So it was still. So so because Howard Beale was talking about uh, the Saudis buying CCA, uh, he gets a talking to by the chairman of CCA, Arthur Jensen, played by Ned Beatty, and gives him that fire and brimstone speech about the uh, primal forces of nature, the ebb and flow of money changing hands. Uh, the quote I pulled was, We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. Mm-hmm. Dark stuff, but probably probably it, true i think what's great about this is that it really it could be a speech out of robocop and we would be mm-hmm. like oh yeah that's so yeah. it's satirical <laughs> but it's so it's actually quite grounded in in reality and how things work mm-hmm. in the real world so maybe we're in a corporate dystopia already yes so howard internalizes this message from arthur jensen and then in his next rant he kind of talks about that and about the the death of the individual mm-hmm. and because corporations run everything and kind of the the meaninglessness of everything in the world with with corporate overlords and because that's a pretty depressing rant his ratings start to tank and uh diana and frank hackett begin talking about what to do about 
Howard Beale's tanking ratings. And apparently they can't just fire him because Arthur Jensen, the chairman of CCA, has taken a personal liking to him. And so he will not let them pull him off the air. So, Grizz, what do they do to fix his bad ratings? They're going to kill him. <laughs> they kill him on the air. Uh, they assassinate him live on TV. Um, uh, I mentioned that Diana kind of gets into a business relationship with the Ecumenical Liberation Army. Um, mm-hmm. And so she has those guys uh, shoot him on the air. And then the movie ends. I thought the ending, it, it, do, it, is, it does come out a little bit out of nowhere. That I will acknowledge. But I think it really completes the satirical nature of the film. I think um, the, the, the Frank and Catherine are the two characters that, throughout the film, and Max, are the two char- three characters that are kind of the straight men or straight characters of obviously she's a woman but you know what i mean that they they are playing it straight they are characters that could be grounded in reality and they are not full-on parody until that scene where they're planning the murder when they're planning the murder it they're talking about oh we have to murder him as if it was any other business report like they were deciding what to order for lunch yes (laughs) and the the complete detachment that they have in this shows essentially it completes the satire of the film it's showing oh these are just corporate people all that matters is the, is the bottom line we do not care at all what the means are to get to that bottom line and yeah i thought it really worked and i also thought that the death scene itself with as soon as it happens like it's not the camera doesn't cut to black and every everything falls into chaos the camera zooms into his face in the same exact way that it did when he passed out at the end of his big rants mm-hmm. And yep. the movie ends with that. So it, it's showing, oh, actually, television as well is is kind of giving into people's morbid curiosity and using that morbid curiosity to create ratings. And, you know, the, the whole the whole subplot, subplot with the ECL is about her basically looking for snuff films to put on TV so that the audience will tune in. And, it, yeah, I, I think yeah, it was I mean, fantastic. I, I, think, I think the ending does work just because, like, it's a, it's a punchline to mm-hmm. the opening which is yes. the opening it opens that with howard cool. threatening to shoot himself on tv and everyone's like aghast like oh my gosh oh you can't terrible. do that and then they shoot him on tv so it's like a punchline to that to that mm-hmm. opener and also hugo you were just kind of alluding to it i think that the the slow progression of of bringing the the ela uh into the yeah, movie ELA. is is it it makes it it makes just enough sense that that slow escalations like it begins like the first time we see diana actually is she's going over um, uh, footage from the ELA, because the ELA, like, robbed a bank mm-hmm. with Patty Hearst, who they'd kidnapped. Yeah. And, uh, Just to be clear, they, this, it was not Patty Hearst in this movie. They reference the other group that did kidnap oh, Patty Hearst. This was another... Yes. Patty Hearst adjacent. Another Patty Hearst adjacent situation. Sure. <laughs> so, and the ELA, like, filmed themselves robbing the bank, and mm-hmm. Diana is, like, very uh, uh, excited about the possibility of having footage of them robbing a bank, and, like, wants to build a series around that because she thinks people will like that it's very interesting dark but again kind of speaks to the what's the moral responsibility of someone who puts stuff on tv corn diana nothing but profits but so that's how it starts is like she sees these people robbing a bank and wants to put it on tv then she eventually like meets with them and like mm-hmm. brings them in to like take part in creating this show that yeah. she wants to create she well, and she meets with the Communist Party, and she the woman from the Communist Party says, oh, we, we don't actually deal with those terrorists. But then it turns out they're actually friends, and they know each other, obviously. Yes. Although there is conflict there. And I, 
And I love how this film doesn't pull any punches on either side. Like it's like, oh, it's... these corporate guys are the worst, but actually these kind of fake communist guys are kind of the worst as well. Yes. And yeah. But Good. again, that's like, that's a small escalation is like yeah. from wanting to, from seeing their footage and wanting to put it on the air to then like making, building a show around them and bringing them in. That's, that's a small escalation. Um, and then later, like, as she's like getting into bed with, with Max, she's like kind of talking about the business and how like they're technically paying the ELA to like go commit more crimes and film it. So technically they are like an accessory to these crimes and like they could be busted by the feds, but like yeah. she doesn't care because it's making money. So like, that's just <laughs> yeah. like, that's like just enough of a seed of like them doing illegal things alongside this army, but like being okay with it because it makes money. And that kind of the natural escalation of that is to have them commit an assassination live on TV and then just, you know, pretend like they didn't know about it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that like the, the escalation there, I think is, is well done and like well planted. And it starts from like a, not a sensible place, but at least a somewhat believable place. And then it ends with, guys pulling out uzis from the from a live studio television audience and shooting him yeah. um I, I i did i did have though here that i do think it's a little it's only the ending is maybe a little bit forced just because they the the, the fact they can't fire him i kind of don't buy that yeah the fact that like ned Beatty took a liking to howard beale and therefore wouldn't let him fire let them fire him um real quick like i, I mentioned like we weren't sure I, I wasn't sure like whether he was doing that fire and brimstone speech to Howard Beale because that's how Howard Beale talks. He wants to relate to him on his level. Or if Ned Beatty is like actually kind of crazy in the same way and therefore he feels a kinship hmm. with Howard and therefore won't let them pull him off the air. Grizz, what do you think? Well, so I, I do think it was because he talks about how I'm a salesperson. I could sell anything to anyone. And then, true. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. he comes in and sells Howard in the way that... Muttled in the primal yes. forces of nature. <laughs> he sells Howard on the ideas that he wants Howard to espouse. Uh, so I really don't think that he's crazy himself. I think he's taking advantage of a crazy person because mm. the, and I think that they also mention when they're saying why they can't fire them. I think it's Diana that says we can't fire him cause he'll be on ABC next week. And that's earlier in the movie. I guess it was earlier in the movie. Like his ratings are going very far down for the assassination conversation. And Frank Hackett says that Arthur Jensen said that like, he doesn't care how low his ratings get. He wants to keep him on the air and, uh, you know, he was inflexible on that point as Frank that's true as he said. says that yeah well yeah so i i don't know maybe I, I was still thinking about well you know he he would just go get put on somewhere else and now that now he's with a competitor i guess you know so in my head i was like there's lots of reasons that they they can't fire him in addition to ned Beatty telling them you can't fire him but that was you know i can also see your your point there it's not it's not 100 percent believable but it's believable well, enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're talking about a live assassination on TV. Like, there's going to be some suspension of disbelief <laughs> to, yes, to, to yeah. make this work. But um, to me, it's it's since the whole film is framed in this kind of absurd exaggeration of something that is very real. I think it works for me in that sense. Yeah, and, and like you said, like we've said a number of times at this point, the the scene where they discuss possibly mm-hmm. assassinating him is very darkly funny just in the contrast yeah. of like what they're talking about and how they're talking about it grizz like you said they're talking about what they're gonna order for lunch in that kind of tone but they're talking mm-hmm. about killing somebody and committing capital crime and hugo like you said the way that shot is very cold and detached and kind of highlights that point um so that 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 works for me and then yeah the, then they kill him and the movie ends i think the most unbelievable thing about that is two guys stand up with guns and shoot howard and the audience doesn't freak out 
We don't really see how the audience reacts. Well, I mean, the movie kind of we ends. see them stand up and they like there's a beat where they've stood up and they've got their guns out before they start firing because they have to give the cameras time to turn on the audience mm-hmm. members. Yeah. And and they don't show any of the other audience members like the person next to that guy should be like, <laughs> you know, something just they that, spaz it out. Know, it's I think the point there is it, the film is also critiquing the audience for buying into all of this. Very much. Crap. Sure. Yes. So yes, the yes, audience yes, yes, yes. kind of. You know the show where they where they show crimes is a big ratings hit because people want have that morbid curiosity True. to see anything for entertainment, and I think that there's kind of a, an element of that in the final scene as well. The audience is is kind of hooked to what's going to happen, and they're like, "Oh, this is part of the show." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, yeah. Pauline Kale's review or negative review of Network was about how everyone gives big, long-winded speeches, but also because it is a critique of. Of anyone who watches television, basically. And she thought that was a little... It, it, a little it kind of is. So, shame on all you sickos who watch television. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's Network. Any any final thoughts on Network before we rank it? Uh, not really. I'll just say I had... I, I, I really enjoyed talking about it more than I thought I would. Because, like I said, I didn't absolutely love the movie. But I, I, I have really enjoyed this discussion of it. Mm. Well, that's kind of the point of the podcast. So I'm yeah. glad you're, you're enjoying our... our this this thing called a podcast. I'm glad you're enjoying it. It's an <laughs> invention. Um, our films remember ranking. Um, I'm I'm assuming this is gonna go in the top ten, so I'll just list the top ten. Uh, oh, yeah. from one to ten, we have Citizen Kane, Boogie Nights, The Thing, Your Name, The Departed, The Wind Rises, Sound of Metal, Incendie, It's a Wonderful yes. Life, and 127 Hours. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna put this pretty high personally. I don't know if I'm gonna be in the minority, yeah. but no, I think this I'm, is good. Hugo's gonna I'm be with did- you. I'm going to be the, yeah. the outlier here. It would not crack okay. the top 10 for me. You son of a bitch. I mean, that's fine. You guys are going to outvote me on that. Go ahead. <laughs> I um, would not be mad about putting this at number three, to be honest. I was, I was going to say two or three is probably where I would put it. So do you guys want to put a number three behind Boogie Nights? Yeah, above I, the thing? I, <sighs> that's a pretty solid top four right there. Yeah. Uh, Citizen Kane, like, Boogie Nights, Network, and The Thing. I that's think... A, that's I a fucking weekend. I have Pardon, some, sorry for cursing. <laughs> I think I have some just minor little things, as I said, in this film that I think aren't as well put together as perhaps Boogie Nights is. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, I I do really gravitate towards the themes of the film. I, I like satire. I like satire about corporations and capitalism. So it it's tough for me. But yeah, overall, I think I would put it at three. So okay. above The Thing and below Boogie Nights. Sweet. I'm fine so with that. Network. Our top ten is Citizen Kane, Boogie Nights, Network, The Thing, Your Name, The Departed, The Wind Rises, Sound of Metal, Ensemble, and It's a Wonderful Life. When are we going to re- re- re-rank these? You ask point? this every week. I mean, yeah, uh, I've well, asked this also, like once or twice. This was, not every week. <laughs> this was episode 25. did you 25? know that I like Jackie Brown more than most yeah. of these movies? I'm not sure <laughs> if I said this before. Uh, For example, you like Jackie Brown more than like Rudy. That's Is that... Fair to say. That could be something that I would say, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, let's say episode 30. Boom. Episode 30. Oh, yeah. I'll, we'll, we'll discuss a re-ranking we'll of these. So next week, I think we're going to have uh, another one that could crack the top 10. Pro- I mean, personally, I hope the next one we do cracks the top three. Uh, mm. And that is... Are we doing Chinatown next week? Yes, we are. Yes. All right. Chinatown. We're going to stick with the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I mean, this ended up not being that much shorter of an episode, but maybe next week will also be a bit of a shorter episode in that we'll just kind of spend it chopping it up about the movie instead of having to 
having a main topic. Um, yep. we, we were kind of discussing off mic how like the conceit of the podcast is, you know, discussing movies that are worth remembering. So yep. let's talk about some older movies and not not Sound of Metal, for example. <laughs> yeah. That came out. As much as I love Sound of Metal, yeah. I, I think Sound of Metal too, will be worth. It'll be worth remembering. Yeah. Oh, certainly. But yeah. no one's forgotten about it yet. <laughs> no one's seen it yet. No one's seen that movie, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, which is a shame. They should. Yeah. Um, it's on Amazon so yeah. Prime. Watch it. If it yeah, yeah. So, watch, it. Uh, watch Sound of Metal. Listen to our episode on Sound of Metal. Uh, watch Chinatown. And then join us next week for Chinatown. Uh, like, subscribe, comment, rate us five stars. Follow us on Twitter at RTF underscore pod and at our respective handles. And. Tweet at Good Game Grizz all your takes about how Network is great and how he's a loser for not liking it. <laughs> I, I like the movie. I don't love the movie. I like it. I don't love it. It's <laughs> You keep making me out to be a villain here, Josh. <laughs> don't tweet me and things at Grizz, but then actually do. But actually don't. I don't know. Do what your heart know. says. Do it, yeah, and, uh, whatever tweet feels me right. things at me. I, I like that. I, I <laughs> tweet me things at Hugo. At Hugo underscore for an I. And yes. then, uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.